Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. If you're looking for an exciting roller coaster, don't look in markets right now. They have been pretty much range bound for a while, not really moving much in one direction or another. Despite any political drama in Washington, despite concerns about unrest in the Middle East, you could have a whole host of existential kind of concerns that people are simply shrugging off. Joining us here to discuss what is the path ahead then, Karen Pei, she's head of equities at Fiduciary Trust Company, joining us here in our interactive broker studio. So Karen, I'm wondering, you were saying that, you know, about a couple months ago, you started repositioning client portfolios to be a little more defensive. Mm-hmm. Are you guys doing anything right now? I mean, are you sort of taking any any approach to, to shift things around? Or are you just sort of watching this and saying, let's go home yeah. early? Right. <laughs> so I think that, you know, we have seen the market in a range bound um, situation because you've got low rates that are supporting the markets on the downside. But you also have um, the potential of any positive changes that could sort of maybe perhaps break the market on the upside. Um, but, you know, when we're looking at the market, we're really looking at fundamentals. And what the fundamentals tell us is that we're in an economy that has been slowing down. And we've seen earnings um, decelerate in terms of growth. Um, and therefore, we started repositioning our portfolios a couple of months ago to be a little bit more defensive from an asset allocation standpoint, um, as well as kind of within equities, repositioning to um, take some profits in the market, recognizing that the S&P is up 20% for the year. Valuations are um, not cheap. They're actually, you know, relatively um, on the high side. And so, you know, we just think that it would be prudent and smart to just take some profits. And we um, have, you know, really looked at um, quality as a factor in our investing. And um, we have you know, looked for more defensive characteristics, but that doesn't necessarily mean paying up for bond proxies. Doesn't necessarily mean that we're gonna chase things in the market that might be driven by some of the macro factors. You know, utilities, for example, up 25% for the year. Um, Consumer staples also up very nicely, but valuations are very rich in those areas. So, Karen, what are some of the sectors that you're looking at here, uh, given that we are kind of late in the cycle and need to get a little bit more defensive? Yeah, so um, I do think that it comes down a lot to um, the uh, individual securities and how our managers are also selecting um, those securities within portfolios. From a sector standpoint, we're mostly neutral at this point. We have been... um, We've had a cyclical bias in our portfolios and a growth bias in our portfolios for some time. Um, we've seen that, you know, uh, we've seen that rewarded really well by the markets. Um, but at this point, you know, we're much more neutrally positioned, and we're taking a notch down in terms of the cyclicality in our portfolio. We took down, for example, um, our overweight to technology a couple of months ago, just in recognition of, you know, the strong gains this year and profit taking. Yeah, yeah, profit taking. So mm-hmm. I'm trying to figure out what it would take for you to change the allocation to shift things around from here. So we do think that if there is positive development, a positive deal on trade, that that would make us become a little bit more um, encouraged. But 
I think that we do still have this view um, that any progress on trade would take some time to translate into fundamentals. We think that um, trade uncertainty has impacted business confidence. It may, you know, at some point impact consumer confidence um, because we've seen some signs of, um, you know, companies raising prices to offset some of the trade costs. So we, we do think that um, if we do get some positive news, the markets probably would perhaps get a relief rally, but it may not be sustainable and we would need to reset. What I'm looking for is really much better um, risk reward in the market, much more attractive valuations and um, equities. So do you think that the next leg is up potentially? Um, in the, it may occur in a short run, but we're not really expecting anything concrete to happen on the trade front. We're not making a bet on that. <laughs> so we would um, advise investors at this point to actually position portfolios to be a little bit more defensive and cautious and really look at managing risks in their portfolios. So on the earnings front, there's really not a story there either. Looks like earnings growth is very flattish in the foreseeable future. Um, so, I mean, is, are there sectors, when you, so when you talk about defensive sectors, I think utilities and REITs and things like that and consumer stables, but my understanding is they're not mm -hmm. cheap. Right, right. So that for, for that reason, we're also finding it very difficult to sort of find a lot of attractive um, things to buy in the marketplace. Um, and therefore, we've actually raised some cash in portfolios. Um, but what I would say is that from an earnings standpoint, we don't see a lot of um, earnings growth. In fact, consensus still has 2020 at about plus 10% growth. We are a bit um, more skeptical about that. When you look through the earnings, we see that um, companies that are more geared to domestic revenues have fared much better. So if you look at second quarter reported earnings, um, companies that have greater than 50% of revenues coming from the U.S. actually posted 5% growth, whereas companies that had greater than 50% international revenues right posted an 11% decline. So there's so a big the discrepancy. Whole, right, the whole yes. trade issue, the whole uncertainty issue, which exactly. is likely to play out, um, yeah, I think, if you look at the consensus earnings for the remainder of the year. Karen Pei, thanks so much for joining us. Karen's head of equities at Fiduciary Trust Company, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. We appreciate her thoughts on the equity markets. Time to check in with Bloomberg Opinion. We're joined by opinion columnist Noah Feldman. Noah's a professor of law at Harvard University. Uh, he's located in Boston, Massachusetts. Noah, thanks so much for joining us. Wow, what a day we had yesterday uh, on Capitol Hill with the testimony. It appears that the impeachment proceedings will, in fact, proceed. What is your thought on kind of where we are right now? We're at an extraordinary moment in which we actually know a huge amount about the details of the allegations and in which we have a roadmap for what we still need to know. And I think it's a high probability that we will find out all of those details. So in a sense, we're in a very different position than we were, say, when the Mueller report uh, came out, when we had been waiting, waiting, waiting for a long, long time, and we got a multiple hundred page document, we had to make sense of it. Here we've got a really brief four or five page document with really clear and specific allegations and a clear roadmap of what comes next. Do you expect President Trump to get impeached? 
I think the odds are pretty high right now that the House will impeach him, though the odds still don't look that high that the Senate would remove him. Um, you know, the Democrats could still turn back at some point if somehow Trump were able to provide some kind of innocent explanation beyond what he said thus far for his conversation with the president of Ukraine. But unless he can, I think essentially all of the Democrats who said they support the impeachment inquiry have said that if these allegations are true, they represent an abuse of power that merits impeachment. And I think it's very probable that these allegations will be seen to be true by Democrats at the end of the inquiry. So what's the tipping point for Republicans? I think the tipping point for Republicans is whether it is plausible to believe Trump's denials. So far this time, we have not heard the kind of legalistic justification that we heard the last time during the Mueller investigation in which the president would say, well, I'm allowed to uh, say anything I want to a foreign official, including attacking my political opponents. Instead, he said, oh, the call was great. It was business as, as normal. You know, the question is, how plausible will Republicans find that? If Republicans cross the line and believe they see a quid pro quo, I think this is really the tipping point. If there's definitive proof that there was a trade-off, that the president was offering the president of Ukraine to unfreeze the aid that he had just frozen in exchange for investigation of, of Joe Biden and of, and of his son, then I think that many Republicans would be forced into the other side. But it's not at all clear there will be definitive proof of that. What there is now is a lot of very strong evidence that suggests that, but there's no truly smoking gun in the sense that there's no tape so far of either Trump or of uh, President Zelensky saying explicitly, this is a trade-off. So, Professor, there's calls for potentially a special counsel uh, needed to investigate Rudy Giuliani and uh, William Barr, the United States Department of Justice Attorney General. What are your thoughts there? I published such a call this morning in Bloomberg Opinion, so I'm, I'm on board with that. I think the bottom line is the whistleblower's complaint alleges conduct to interfere with a U.S. election, which could well have violated criminal statutes. And Rudy Giuliani will not be the target of the investigation by the House, because they will be investigating properly the President of the United States. Rudy Giuliani is a private citizen, and there is enough evidence in the whistleblower complaint to make it credible that he may have committed crimes. So he needs to be investigated. And the reason it needs to be a special counsel is not only that it's an investigation connected to the president, but also that the whistleblower specifically named Attorney General William Barr and specifically said that it appears that's the whistleblower's language that Barr was involved. Now, Barr, to be fair, has issued a denial of that, but you can't say I'm accused of a crime, but I'm not guilty of it, so I'm not recusing myself. That's not how recusal works. If you've been credibly connected by the president of the United States, in his call to the president of Ukraine, he repeatedly invoked Attorney General Barr. So if you've been credibly connected to conduct that may well have been criminal, you can't supervise the investigation, full stop. So Barr has to recuse himself, and a special counsel is needed. Last but not least, there's the question of a potential cover-up of this phone call in the White House. The whistleblower alleges concretely that this transcript of this call was suppressed, and then it was put into a different database, a more classified database than it would ordinarily have been put into. Those are steps that need to be investigated to determine whether they were part of a criminal cover-up or obstruction of justice. And that, too, will involve an investigation into what was going on in the White House, possibly behind by the president's advice, possibly not. And a special counsel needs to look at that, too. I just want to add, we don't want to wait until the special counsel reports for the House to be able to go forward. That would not make sense. The House can simultaneously go forward with its own inquiry into the president's conduct.
Is there a historical period to which this period is analogous? Not really, because, you know, during the long, slow Mueller investigation, I was interested in the question of whether the whole thing was more like the historical investigation of Richard Nixon or more like the investigation of Bill Clinton. In other words, was it something with a real crime at the back of it or was it something that in the end would come up with a rather small or or minimalistic allegation? And, you know, I think it turned out on the whole to be slightly more like the Clinton case. But what's going on now is after the long, long, slow drum roll of the Mueller investigation, we suddenly have this short, sharp, you know, symbol sound of the allegations around this phone call. And we haven't in the past had a kind of aftershock of a long investigation in the same way. So that we're on we're on uncharted territory here. Noah Feldman, thank you so much for being with us. Noah Feldman, professor of law at Harvard University, also a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. You can find all of his columns and everyone else's uh, who writes for Bloomberg Opinion at OPINGO on the Bloomberg terminal or Bloomberg.com slash opinion. Well, as we heard from the Bloomberg Global Business Forum this week, chief executive officers certainly have plenty on their plate. They have trade uncertainty, slowing global growth, and then continued geopolitical risk in the marketplace. Uh, To get a sense of what CEOs are thinking about going forward, uh, we welcome Regina Mayer. Regina is a global sector head for energy and natural resources for KPMG. She joins us on the phone from Houston, Texas. Regina, thanks so much for joining us. What were maybe the key takeaways from KPMG's 2019 CEO outlook? The the key takeaway was that CEOs named climate change as the number one risk to organizational growth. This is the first time in the five-year history of doing the survey that climate change topped the charts of the risks ahead of technology disruption or cyber or territorialism. 76% Fully three-quarters of them say their growth will depend on their ability to navigate the shift to a low-carbon economy. Are these CEOs all industries, or are they focused in one specific one? It was 1,300 CEOs across 11 industries. So quite striking for uh, climate change to be the number one for the first time in the history of our survey. I mean, it's been climbing steadily. Has it like been a close number two for a long time and it just sort of edged ahead? Or has there been a notable upsurge in the amount of concern around climate change? It's a notable upsurge. It was four last year and it vaulted from four to number one. I think it's consistent with what you've seen in New York around the UN Climate Summit and the level of energy and enthusiasm that's building. It's not a nice to have, it's a requirement now. So Regina, is this perceived, is this really focusing on like energy, carbon footprint? What are some of the the, the underpinnings of their, uh, the issues about climate change? quite a a few things that are going on. Number one, they're getting a lot of pressure externally. Their communities, their employees, their investors, the ESG component of the investment uh, proportion is driving a lot of this need for change. But they're also saying, I think there's not a lot of climate science deniers anymore, particularly even in the energy space. While we do realize we need fossil fuels to continue to drive 
uh, the wealth that we have globally. We also know we have a dual challenge in that we have to figure out how to reduce the carbon footprint. So you're seeing multiple strategies. Some are focusing more on renewables and a totally green footprint. Others are focusing on carbon capture and how do we capture and remove the carbon that's in the atmosphere today. But everyone's talking about the need to do something. So let's shift gears a little bit to just sort of business climate and sentiment. Part of the survey uh, showed that 94% of energy CEOs are confident about their business's growth prospects, but 65% feel the same about the global economy. Is that a sort of consistent uh, feeling across the sectors, or is that isolated to energy? No, it's consistent feeling across the sectors, but I do think it's a stark disconnect because last year's survey showed that that number was a lot closer together. We were exuberant about the global economy and exuberant about our own company's prospects. So there is either this sense of the growing unease about what's happening geopolitically that folks worry about the, the strength of the global economy, but they still, 94%, I mean, that's an, that's an amazing percentage to feel really confident about your own company's growth. So either there's more fundamental strength in the global economy underpinned by these, uh, these sentiments, or it could be maybe perhaps a little bit of irrational exuberance on the part of the individual CEOs. So Regina, one of the things that Lisa and I hear often as we speak to corporate executives is the need to find and the, and the challenge to finding properly trained employees as the economy continues to become uh, more technical, more digital. Um, what is your survey telling you on that front? Yeah, thanks for that. I think one of the stark points for me, too, is that 80% of the energy CEOs, now I'm, I'm taking a slice that personally leading their own technology strategy for their organization, and 85% plan to upskill their employees in new digital capabilities. So there is this belief that it's not just about finding new employees, it's about reskilling the base that you have because the world around them is changing. And it's at all levels. It's a multi-generational push. You know, those of us that are that are older and perhaps less tech savvy, we have to figure out how to use these new tools to make our jobs more effective and the company more effective, as well as being relative to the digital natives that are entering the workforce in droves. Regina, I want to just take a step back, taking a look at the entire report and the mood that you sort of uh, felt being created by all of these chief executive officers. Right now in markets, every investor who comes in here, or most of them anyway, say it's clear global growth is slowing, the U.S. economy is slowing down, we're getting cautious. Is that cautious feeling being reflected by the actual plans of these CEOs? I mean, is this something that can be confirmed in corporate America? You are seeing more judicious capital allocation and budget management as a, as a result and as a response. And then one of the other themes that I think came across was the need to be agile because the, the global signals are changing so rapidly. And from one day to the next, we're not entirely sure what our commodity price environment is going to look like, what our share price looks like, what our uh, investors and employees need from us. So we need to be agile to make different decisions and, and to respond to the signals as they're rapidly changing. I think that was the key that came out in response to the environment that you just described. Um, the need to be agile because you have to change your responses pretty quickly in today's world. So, Regina, one of the things that's really driving financial markets really over the last year plus has been the ups and downs of uh, and the uncertainties surrounding global trade and uh, trade tensions between the U.S. and China. Any feedback from your survey about how CEOs are thinking about that risk? It's definitely uh, a very strong risk that's playing in. And for our sector in energy, 
it has a major impact, right? It is showing that there is concern globally about demand, uh, in particular from India and China, and the geopolitics with the tariffs and the trade war do not help that. So, you know, my clients focus a lot on the commodity price, and the commodity price is depressed because of a lot of the concerns about future demand and future growth prospects. That's where we see in our industry the trade wars, the uncertainty on tariffs, having a very real and immediate impact. Regina Mayer, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Regina Mayer is Global Sector Head for Energy and Natural Resources at KPMG, talking about that 2019 CEO outlook uh, showing that climate change topped all concerns for the first time in history. Let's shift gears and focus on the credit markets because what we have seen this month, a rally, it's been the first week since August that we've actually seen high yield bonds lose value and you are seeing investors becoming more discerning. Joining us now, Michael Temple, Director of Corporate Credit uh, focused on the U.S. for Amundi Pioneer. Michael, thank you so much for being with us. I want to just start there. We are seeing some pushback by investors. What's your takeaway from that? Hi, Lisa. Um, well, you know, this is sort of typical types of uh, signs that you get when you're sort of reaching the end of the credit cycle. Um, and we don't know how long the credit cycle is going to continue to last, but, you know, some of these companies, particularly the triple C uh, rated companies that are trying to get access to the capital markets and refinance, um, are finding it's uh, a little tough going. So why is that just simply because, again, where we are in the cycle, or is there something specific in uh, the bond market per se? No, I think it's, it's, it's more about the cycle. I mean, if you look at um, high yield uh, and even investment grade corporate credit performance this year, it's actually been very strong. But what's been interesting is that um, the strongest part of that uh, return, particularly in high yield, has been in the higher quality parts of the market, so the double B parts of the market. Now, part of that is because you've seen this dramatic rally in the underlying um, uh, part of the structure, that is the the treasury structure, Uh, but corporate credit spreads in the higher quality part of the high yield market have done really, really well, and and the the areas of the market that have been struggling struggling a little bit more has been the, the lower quality parts of the credit market. Um, and in particular, areas in the energy market. And so from that standpoint, I think what we're seeing is, despite the fact that um, uh, you know, overall yields have compressed, the really lower credit quality parts of the market are kind of struggling to get access to capital. So at this point in the credit cycle, and given the fact that we have seen the outperformance of higher rated credit, are you positioning for that to continue? Well, at this stage, we think there's a lot of value still in the sort of single B part of the market. So we would call it kind of the middle tier part of the market. Um, We are very underweight the triple C side of the market right now. I think we're um, concerned about, um, you know, the the potential for idiosyncratic credit risk exposure. We're not yet seeing it on a total sectoral basis other than in energy, as I mentioned. Um, but yes, we're sort of continuing to focus on the double B and single B part of the high yield market right now. So, Michael, given that we are, you know, uh, late into a cycle, you know, 10 plus years into this economic cycle, 
what's this what's your take on credit quality out there are you seeing any uh, real pressures or strains in your portfolio in terms of credit quality well, you know, it's interesting. About six months ago, everybody was talking about the uh, significant increase in the amount of triple B credit uh, exposure in the index. Um, and there was a, the view, I believe, that um, particularly triple B issued creditors were going to have to really pay attention to their overall credit quality and begin to reduce debt because of the concerns and the warnings that people were putting out about this significant bulbs. And the concern was you're going to see a lot of these credits fall down into high yield. Well, six months later, you really haven't seen it. And I think the fears of that have really receded. But the reality is, is that these companies by and large really haven't delivered. They have not reduced uh, any of the, uh, uh, or there is the, the risk associated with these credits really hasn't reduced anymore. Um, and I think at some point, um, people, investors are once more going to start to focus on that area of the market. So we're being very selective in the in the triple B part of the market, um, avoiding those areas where we think there may be some secular pressure. So um, food and beverage kind of comes to mind. Um, in the high yield market, we're actually uh, seeing an increase in overall credit quality as more and more investors and issuers are sort of focusing on the double B part of the market. So here's the thing. I'm going to make a sort of contrary argument, Michael. I mean, mm -hmm. for let's say triple C's to outperform going forward. Everyone's saying they're so cautious and everyone's saying that we're getting toward the end of the cycle. And so it's important to move up in corporate credit, uh, credit worthiness. And yet there's a wall of cash coming from overseas uh, in the face of negative yields. And that is continuing and in some ways accelerating. And you have to wonder at what point that just outweighs the fundamentals, especially because that will keep companies going for longer perhaps than they should and avoid the sort of downdraft? That is a great question, Lisa, and a very interesting observation. Um, we've thought about that as well. And so the question really is, in a nutshell, do technicals end up trumping fundamentals? Um, and Much better um, said I than think, what I said. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I do think that uh, there is a chance that that, that 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 does occur. So in particular, we're seeing significant inflows uh, into uh, investment-grade corporates uh, and into uh, – in, 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 in less of a way, but we're still seeing it as well, into the high-yield market from investors overseas who are just gasping for yield. Um, and so from that standpoint, I think – um, we definitely could see, as we see further spread compression in double Bs and single Bs, we could see um, uh, spread compression among triple Cs, which would then give access to some of these triple C rated companies to refinance themselves. The alternative view is, though, that you get a bifurcation in the market. And I think that's kind of what we're seeing. Despite the quote unquote wall of money that we're seeing, from overseas, we're still seeing some of these, what we would describe as, um, uh, you know, questionable business models actually struggling to get funded. Uh, and so from that standpoint, I think the jury's still out. So, Michael, I need to juice my portfolio a little bit here as we get towards the year end. What sector should I be looking at? Well, again, we think the the single B area of the corporate credit market is still relatively attractive. And I say relatively uh, in, in air quotes because um, everything is, is trading uh, rich right now on a historical basis. But if you look at um, the single B part of the high yield market, I think it's, the, it's really sort of the Goldilocks right now for most investors. 
Um, you can avoid certain sectors that you think might be under secular pressure. Um, and in general, uh, many of these companies have been spending a, a number of years upgrading uh, the overall credit quality. The average uh, credit statistics in the high yield market have continued to improve. Um, this is in yeah. direct contradiction to the investment grade market. And some, of course, are more concerned about the bank loan market on the deterioration of credit quality that we're seeing there. But again, our view is um, this is probably a per- as good a place as any to start putting your money. Michael Temple, thank you so much for joining us. Michael's a director of corporate credit for U.S. and, and for the U.S. and portfolio manager for Amundi Pioneer uh, joining us on the phone. We appreciate his thoughts on the credit markets. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.